This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, it's National Jazz Month, celebrating jazz. We take a deep dive into Canada's rich jazz history. Alan Matheson, musician and jazz historian with UBC, tells us about the roots of jazz in Canada, how it's evolved over the last few decades and around the world. Can a song be a hit if it was made by AI, artificial intelligence? Canadian music correspondent Eric Elper helps us understand computer-generated songs and how they could shake up the music industry. Uh, can you sue over that when it's not somebody singing, it's just a computer doing it? Questionable. We'll see what happens because it has happened to Drake and The Weeknd. Are you okay with The Lost and Found? What about misleading tweets? It's all on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. April is Jazz Month. I uh, didn't know Jazz had a whole month. Jazz had a couple of decades all to itself, though. That's really uh, the important part of it. And because Jazz is Jazz is special, we always joke here when we do 80s nights that we need more saxophone in rock and roll like we had in the 80s, um, that I thought it would be a great opportunity New Music Monday. Now, this is probably not new music, but it might be new to you music, which is all right, too. Uh, to talk a little bit about jazz. So this is where we're starting our conversation about jazz. I'll tell you very quickly, my love affair uh, for jazz, I play the saxophone. And I uh, didn't play it really beyond high school, though, junior high, high school, lot of stuff. And I absolutely loved it when I did it. I love jazz band. I mean, it's one of those things that I'm okay in my life, leaving it behind. I would love to make music again, but it's not. Not yet, not yet in my life, and, and that happens. That's part of the magical things. Alan Matheson is a Vancouver-based pianist, trumpeter, composer, and arranger, lover of all things jazz, and um, joins us now. Hey, Alan. Hey, how are you today? I'm good. I appreciate you uh, uh, being here. Um, jazz is special. Um, now, we can talk about the eras of jazz. Why is jazz? Jazz is different. Why is jazz different? Well, I think jazz is a way of playing music. Um, you know, Cannonball Adderley famously used to say that it's it's not a it's not just a style of music; it's a way of approaching music. And the thing that jazz brought to North American music was this individual interpretation of music that had been around already, or music that's newly composed. Both of those things, and that to me is what makes it special. And the other special thing about jazz is the rhythmic sophistication it has. It brought us the concept of swing, and uh, that was something really new to, certainly to North American pop music. We wouldn't really have most of what we know as, you know, rhythm and blues or rock and roll or even hip hop and rap without jazz. Uh, yeah, well, the hip hop thing is a big one. Um, there's no doubt about that. Now, let's go back in time. There's something about jazz from the 40s um, that is gives me this warm fuzzy. I don't know if it was a previous life mystical thing in my head or what it is, but there's something about it. Um, you know, we had jazz start had some twenties, you know, we got some flappers, we got all that stuff. Uh, let's go back in time, Alan. Um, let's learn because you do teach, um, you know, all about jazz to musicians and non-musicians. Let's go back to the very, very beginning. Well, I think jazz was a way of playing that grew out of ragtime, and ragtime was really the first important way that African-American musicians made their dent on American pop music. But um, ragtime is a very sort of strict kind of style in a lot of ways, but it uses rhythmic syncopation like African music did and early jazz did. But early jazz and all jazz really was a reinterpretation of music that was already there. And in New Orleans, places like that, they would reinterpret folk songs, 
French marching band songs, American marching band songs, uh, new tunes that they made up, the blues, everything. So everything was grist for the mill. And this is still true now with jazz musicians. You'll find younger jazz musicians doing their own thing on, on music from today and from very far back in time. That was jazz then was celebration based for the most part. Um, you know, that was an era of post World War II, uh, excuse me, post World War I. Uh, depression stuff was starting to kick in. So the celebration of using the music as a tool to energize and all that stuff, that was blatantly obvious. When you talk about, you know, the marching songs and all that stuff, I think of when the Saints go marching in and how all those sort mm-hmm. that sort of style became this very boisterous, like, wow, here's all the music at you sort of thing that happened That's in right. jazz. But then it That's started right. to get emotive as as times changed. It started to become that mm-hmm. sexy, that relationship, that love affair thing, and it started to shift. Well, I think one of the reasons you probably feel warm and fuzzy about 40s jazz is in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, jazz was dance music, and so it was a a very public art form, so left room for people to dance to it, but also for people in the band to play improvised solos, and of course, with the big swing bands, it was a great way to sell jazz, and after the Second World War, that's when the real change happened, when jazz became more of a listener's art form, and the, the loss of it becoming not a dance music so much anymore became the listener's benefit and the musician's benefit in some ways that there's more room for what you're talking about like different types of expression that probably wouldn't have worked in a big large dance hall like the commodore ballroom here in vancouver places like that you're playing in a small jazz club you can play with greater degree of intimacy yeah well yeah you get that sort of feeling and the the clubs change too right the clubs um were these romantic uh sit down candlelit tables where you sort of see in the movies today i was just watching ted lasso and um mm-hmm. and they had um was it it was in netherlands there was a pub there that they went to that was a jazz club and it was exactly that it was like that that rose candle small table bistro sized table with a really cluttered low ceiling um jazz band playing like a bass guitar could barely um or the bit yeah the bass could barely barely stand up right like it was so low in the ceiling that sort of vibe was a thing that's right and that was really common after the, especially after the second world war but as you're saying too in the 20s it was also true but you know because public dancing was so popular in the 20s and 30s and 40s that um the big bands dominated that but after the that era shifted smaller jazz clubs pop up and smaller groups to go with it and as you know as a greater degree of intimacy to the music as well yeah fancy so good. All right, so let's talk about jazz music. What, what's the good stuff? You got to give me the good stuff, Alan. Oh, <laughs> from what what time? But period? that's I mean, that's the thing. What, where does it land with you? Good, I mean, um, where's well, where's the good jazz? Ah, uh, you mean uh, in terms of right now? I don't know. Wherever it lands for you. Uh, I mean, I'm good, like wh- I'm thinking wh- blank canvas. I mean, I have. There's mm-hmm. some jazz that I love today. That that is. I mean, because there are some amazing artists that are creating this very progressive mm-hmm. loop based. Holy cow, mm-hmm. jazz! They're using technology to create loops, yep. and and it's amazing. So we can get to that. Um, but for you, like, where is the sweet spot of the magic of the jazz? Your opinion? Oh well, I think anybody who's playing it well. I mean, there's just so many possibilities these days. Like you mentioned, loop-based jazz and people incorporating hip hop elements. You have pianist Robert Glasper doing that. On the other hand, you have young Canadian artists like. Uh, trumpeter and singer Bria Sconebrook, who's just a giant in terms of playing swing jazz and traditional jazz, along with bassist Jennifer Hodge, who's from Vancouver, and they both live in the New York area, and they 
they do really well playing swing and traditional jazz. So um, what's great about this, the music is you can hear wonderful practitioners in all the styles, you know, people who like Robert Glasper who or Christian Scott, the trumpet player, who are more on the modern side, and then people like Maria Sconberg who adhere to, I would say, a mashup of, of rhythm and blues and trad jazz and swing as well. And so it, there's just so many possibilities today because even though I teach jazz history, the thing I like to stay state a lot is that it's not museum music you know it's it's really interesting all these styles that whether they come from right now or all the way back to the 1920s are still active today and people are playing them and there's lots of different types of players and composers keeping all that music vital as you say that though i feel like jazz is an unfair umbrella you know it's so big it's kind of like saying music. <laughs> well, that's true. And, you know, uh, people who uh, preceded us, like Duke Ellington, that's what he wanted to call it. He says, why don't we just call it American music? That was the term he wanted to call it back in the 40s. And he was right in a way because he saw even then it was such a big umbrella because, you know, almost from the beginning, jazz, what we call jazz now, incorporated elements of Latin music, Caribbean music, remnants of African music, church music, pop music, everything, right? So, and that was true back in the 20s, and that's true now. Mm. So let's talk about these looping, this looping and technology things here. Alan Matheson teaches jazz. Um, you know, there's so much to jazz. There's the piano players that sort of lean into it that way. And then there's the saxophone players. And then you have the Chet Bakers of the world that were all about the horns. I mean, I guess piano, but, um, you know, that, and that's, that's the all about the horn stuff. Today, when you see a jazz musician, and, and I don't want to paint everybody with one brush, but you're starting to see a real trend. It is a multifacet, multi-instrument art. It has become a technology-based art, which is one of the most ironic. When you think about rock and roll, distortion pedals, all that stuff, makes sense. Dance music, keyboards, electronic, uh, makes sense. Jazz, in its own way, has really stepped into this sexy, sultry loop thing where you have artists that they'll create a loop on a loop on a loop, on a loop, and then they'll just continue to play. It's become a three-dimensional art form. Maybe it was always, now that I say that, maybe it was always a three-dimensional art form. It's just newly three-dimensional. Um, Traditionalists yeah, must a... cringe a little bit, but at the same time go, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I think you get all kinds of reactions. And uh, I noticed the video you have for your program showed some young musicians using loops. And loops have been with us probably in actual fact, since the 70s with the experiments of Miles Davis and Freddie Hubbard in the recording studio where they were actually using, you know, a real basic form of that with magnetic tape back in the 70s. And I remember seeing Freddie Hubbard do this live in the 70s, but now it's much easier to do and more common. And, you know, it's, it's a tool. And it, like anything, it's what you do with that tool that makes it interesting. So someone can use that really well and someone maybe not so well. And, uh, I mentioned Robert Glasper. That's a person who uses that tool really, really well. And there's other musicians around who use it really re well too. So it's just adds another sonic dimension and another performance aspect that makes things interesting, I think, for the listener as well as the player. The song that Alan's talking about is when you join my video room, there's um, there's a video that plays music video. And the song is called Tadao. Um, Misego is the, is the artist, FKJ. Um, what do you call what, what do you think of that i mean uh, that kind of music that's sexy to me i love that and um very mm -hmm. jazz based i don't know if it's jazz jazz what would you is that a fit for you well 
It would it would fit right into my playlist for the jazz history class. Would it really? Hey, <laughs> you know, if, oh, for sure. Because I mean, they've got you know a steady but flexible beat going on that they lay down with the guitars and the drum machine stuff, and then they play over top with saxophones and guitar. And it's to my ears, at least, they're they're improvising on top of a you know a given set of chords and a basic melody that they're creating variations on. And so that that to me makes it jazz because they lay down something for us to latch on to that, okay, that's the basic song. Now they're going to take us someplace. I'll take that song on a journey and then bring it back. And, and that's a, a real component of jazz as well. But also between the two musicians and the track they're playing with or the you know, loop they're playing with, there's all this rhythmic interplay. And that above all else makes jazz jazz for me is that rhythmic interplay. Is that, is that, I've always guessed thought of jazz as, you know, emotional expression. It always comes in different forms, but mm. the fundamental thread that always I've found inside jazz is there's an emotional expression that you don't hear in um, classical music. Classical music, you hear drama, but you don't hear emotional expression. I find those distinctly different. Um, it, 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 what is it, it, it is for you? Is, is that fair or is there something else that, uh, well, that you find is yeah, the Yeah, I mean, uh, oh, sorry to interrupt you. Um, I agree with you. It's it's just different in a way because, you know, because I also am classically trained with classical music. It's like you inhabit a character in order to play it. And so you you get inside the drama of that piece, be it the Tchaikovsky violin concerto or what have you. With jazz, and this is the big difference, we got more room for in, your individual voice. So in a way, you can become more emotive, not just dramatic, but actual emotive. And in terms of classical music, there's a quest for a certain homogeneity, and I mean that in a positive way, but a certain likeness of sound, you know, within the orchestra and we, even within soloists. Soloists have more latitude, but in terms of jazz soloists, yeah, like you hear the trumpet played by Louis Armstrong or Chet Baker or Christian Scott, it's hard to believe it's the same instrument in some ways. And yet they're all three individuals and they make a very individual sound on the horn. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, I, I, if I think back to jazz and classical even rock and roll. Um, I don't know. I've seen DJs cry. Like I've seen DJs up on a stage, massive cloud. I mean, because there's a real call and response to that electronic, right? There's a real call and response that goes on. Mm -hmm. Rock and roll is a different call and response. Um, but I've seen a DJ cry. I don't know if I've ever seen a, a, a rocker cry. I don't know if I've ever seen mm -hmm. um, an orchestra cry. But I've most certainly seen a jazz player sitting on stage playing with tears rolling down their cheeks uh, many mm. different times. So that anecdotally lends support to what you're saying, that there is this element of story. Yeah, that's very true. And, you know, and, and one of the greatest of all jazz players, tenor saxophonist Lester Young, you know, when he listened to someone play, if he thought they weren't being themselves, he'd say, hey, but what's your story? You know, you got to tell a story on your horn or whatever instrument you play. You got to, it isn't just taking a solo. You got to tell a story. And uh, for a lot of us, I would say Lester's words are words to live by. You think about that. It's like, what do I want to say with this? I've got this amount of bars to solo now. What do I want to say with that? Mm -hmm. And hopefully add to the piece. It isn't just look at how fast my fingers move or something like that. And I feel like the greatest jazz players, it doesn't matter if it's, uh, you know, like I said, Louis Armstrong, a more contemporary player like Ingrid Jensen from Canada, they always tell a story. There's always a, a narrative going on. Uh, that's fascinating. Um, it is interesting when you look at it that way. 
Do you have a favorite person or or piece? Or... Well, uh, <laughs> there's 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 too many favorites, but I guess if this was sort of a desert island question, um, it probably have to be Duke Ellington in the end. Really, eh? Why? And when I say when I say Duke Ellington, I mean the band as well, because uh, and why? Because really, the Ellington band and Ellington's music, along with Billy Strayhorn and wrote with him, created an entire cosmos. I mean, they it's just so deep that you can spend years just uncovering new facets every time you listen to mm. it. And, uh, you know, I hate to just bring it down to one, just one person, but we're kind of talking about an entity here because with the Ellington band, he kept so many of the same players for decades and decades. It had a sound that was just truly, truly unique. Uh, um, instrument. You play a lot of them. Is there a favorite? Mm. I mean, with your classical background, I suppose it's probably different than what you would do mm -hmm. if I asked you about jazz, which, uh, where do you land? No, I, I, I'm going to hide behind again. I'm going to paraphrase Duke when he was asked, but who's your favorite singer? He said, well, the person I'm enjoying right now and say I play the piano and the trumpet, I'd say the instrument I'm playing right now is my favorite. <laughs> you know, so, right. Because it, it, it's, it's nice to be able to play both because they express different things for me. You know, you can, it, it just gives you a greater range. And, and there's a few of us who, you know, do play both like trumpeter Brad Turner from Vancouver and the late great saxophonist Ross Taggart played sax and piano and and uh, it just gives you a bit more um, of a musical kaleidoscope to work with you know so whichever instrument I'm playing at the time that's my favorite right. do you um do you ever sit down and just kind of noodle away and then start into a genre of music without realizing it is there any is that a way that oh. it happens I have no idea all the time yeah. yes that's that's a great question all the time especially when you're thinking about composing that sometimes is the best way to start you don't really go in there with a plan you go in there with some trust and know that you're going to hopefully tap into those ideas and creativity that you have and and see where it takes you you know rather than trying to preform it before it happens so oh yes all the time that's what got me started playing music by the way my grandmother's place in calgary she had a beautiful piano and I used to go over there when I was five and I wouldn't hit or bang it. I'd go and listen for what interesting sounds can I make on this? Right. Thing? You know, and it's still true. There, so I kind of go to that five-year-old place. There must be a, um, there must be a mystical element, faith element, um, for musicians like you that have been around it for your whole life, guys who like to create stuff. And because there has to be a belief system that you're channeling something. I don't think that you can sit there and believe it's really you. Um, you have to be able to like be connected, get in the flow, channel things. So is there really that belief system somewhere buried? It may be different for everybody, but whether it's mystical or faith or whatever, that you're actually connecting to something else in order to be in that moment? Absolutely. No, I think that's a great word you used. You are channeling something. You kind of become the instrument for whatever you're fortunate enough to have come down. And, um, you know, I got into music as a kid too, because I wanted to compose music. And the thing that intrigued me about jazz, because I discovered it a few years later, was like, oh, these guys sound like they're composing while they play. And that was a really exciting mm -hmm. idea to me. So, you know, composition's the same way. You try and start at that same kind of open place where you're receptive. And as you said, opening that channel so that ideas come or inspiration comes and it could be two notes it could be 16 notes you never know these loop guys that start building loops and building loops on loops it's quite amazing to watch them do that um because they are thinking yeah. not only with this uh segment or measure of music they're literally you know thinking of layer on layer on layer and how does this sound down the road when i drop this layer and all that stuff that's impressive 
It really is. It, it it really is. And I don't know how many people realize that it it actually relates directly to West African music, which is structured very similarly, ry- rhythmically. There's usually a you know a underlying big beat with various other beats layered on top of it, and that's been going on for let's say hundreds of years, if not more. And um, a lot of that survived, I feel, into jazz even in the twenties. And so, when people build loops, it's very similar. They're taking you know one expression of time and adding other expressions of time over top to make this satisfying and complete, but complex whole. Yeah. Uh, people might think of that uh, sort of in the round. Remember when you were in choir in like grade five and they used to make you sing and then you would sing this song and then the next group would go, you would sing the song and sing the song we go and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that was the, yeah. that's basically what's happening, except it's one person with multiple instruments and multiple layers um, that, that build this and they're able to do it on their own. It's fascinating. Absolutely. It's it's completely fascinating. And it's so great to see what people who, you know, have creative mind can do with it, you know, and how they use it, you know, as a color or as a basis for the music. It's fantastic. In Vancouver, you can teach non-musicians. Uh, that's what you do across the country uh, from that look to help everyone else out. If, if you've always wondered if this is something that you'd be interested in learning in, picking up that instrument, that bucket list item that you've always wanted to do, or just picking it up again, what's a good way for one to get started, Alan, to, to go look and how do you find these things, these courses? Well, um, a lot of places are still running online courses. Like I do an online jazz history course for the Vancouver Symphony School of Music. And um, it, it, it does attract both musicians and non-musicians or people like yourself who played at one time and are getting back to it now. And I think in terms of if someone wants to get started on or get back to an instrument, the best way nowadays, especially since it's possible, is look up a, a good private teacher, you know, because that's, that's the best way. I mean, you can learn things from YouTube, but it's, it's really not the same, you know, as having someone check in with mm-hmm. you. I mean, I, I had a couple of people start with me during the uh, lockdown and have done quite well, you know, because they, you know, the secret is they keep playing every day, right. you know, even if, even if it's 15 minutes a day, they're playing every day. Oh, it never so, hurts I would to say, have somebody yeah. say way to go champ either. Right. No, it's really essential. I was very lucky to have some great teachers. You know, when I was a, a student, I really was a couple of people who really mentored me and I hear their voices every day, so to speak. Yeah, you know? I love it. Oh, this is so good. Thanks for being here. Uh, it's Alan Matheson. He does teach, by the yeah. way, Vancouver Symphony School of Music, uh, jazz history and all those lectures and teaching, plus the music teaching Vancouver Community College and and all of that. Um, let's celebrate Jazz Month and, and play some jazz things. Maybe reintroduce people to this beautiful art form. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Shane. This is the Shift Podcast. AI. Sick of it already. (laughs) I mean, you know what? I went and signed up for one of those uh, schedule organizer AI things. And it was all right. I don't think it's actually AI, right? I think it's doing calculations of distances and stuff like that. I don't think it's actually AI. AI is being sold to us everywhere. Uh, Sign up for my product and we'll use AI to make you more money. Uh, I just think that it's really more of a marketing tool than anything else. Now, there is real AI out there, and there are real AI websites that'll do that. We have chatted about this with this very fellow who's here, Eric Alper is here, and um, talked about AI and the influence of AI in music. Well, take a wild guess what happened, Eric. Somebody made a song. Somebody made a song. How do you know that you're really talking to Eric Alper and not an AI Eric Alper who's taller, better looking, and smarter? I I really don't, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this was um, um, this was a short time coming. Um, I I think you know for for me the first time I really heard about AI is when I was watching the Irishman that movie that Martin Scorsese yep. directed and they made Robert De Niro 30 years younger. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of cool. And it was like, wow, you've got the ability to have the smart, well-versed and experienced Robert De Niro look younger, look like in his thirties. Well, that's exactly what a couple of people have done, including one person named ghostwriter 977 who fed into the giant AI website, all sorts of Drake songs and the weekend songs and came up with a brilliant track called heart on my sleeve that garnered tens of millions of views and streams totaling about $4 and 93 cents worth of royalties. <laughs> um, no, uh, about, uh, about $50,000 so far worth of royalties and you know, went viral as these things do and out came the lawyers. And that's where we are basically right now. The song's actually been taken down by Spotify and the official platforms like Google and YouTube, but it's everywhere now. If you look, um, there is a still a heart on my sleeve by ghost, the producer now on Spotify. So it's possible they've just adjusted. I don't know. Could be, or that somebody else decided to ride on the coattails of Ghostwriter 977. And that therein lies the problem is like if you're the lawyer now for Drake or the Weekends um, record label, which is both universal, do you go after whack a mole and try to find and track down this Ghostwriter person? Or do you sue Spotify? and Google and YouTube and Facebook and Twitter and everybody else. And that seems to be what the Universal's lawyers are doing. And not because they used Drake's name or the weekend's name, although they could have, um, but they used it because of an uncleared sample that the song has. So that was very interesting to me because, you know, you and I both grew up in the era where rap artists started using sampling, using voices and instruments of songs that were from the 1960s and 70s and kind of twisting them and turning them and making them something else without giving proper credit or royalties to the original artist. Now, though, you've got lawyers that might have a multitude of different ways to start taking down notices of music and also suing the original creators, not just samples, but using the name Drake and The Weeknd, our license, their copyright, um, and uh, uh, and also just generally the mass confusion of making a song that people are assuming that are going to be Drake in the weekend. Now I'm going to ask some questions that might seem naive because I truly don't know, but let's yeah. um, let's bat this ball around. I don't think they actually say that they're Drake in the weekend. That is well, um, it's using the voices of Drake in the well, okay. weekend, and so yeah. that. Yeah, so that that actually brings up something else right. too without making everybody's head spin. A number of years ago, Doritos asked Tom Waits, the gravel voice singer, to be in a Doritos commercial. He turned them down quickly and 4 months later Doritos ended up using a commercial using a Tom Waits like yeah. singer. Tom Waits sued Doritos and won because it he felt that people were going to think that Tom Waits actually gave permission 
for his yeah. voice or himself that he did that. So yes, even though that it didn't say Drake on it, it's clearly yeah. If you hear it, oh, I don't Drake disagree with you. Weekend. I'm just trying to bat around the legal yeah. ball. So in the Tom Waits story, though, yeah. they made a play for Tom Waits, got declined, and then sort of duplicated it and made a pseudo Tom Waits. Yeah. Therefore, to me, that's the intention is there. Like the guilt is there. Right. In this particular case, yeah. though, it's not actually Drake singing. It's a computer simulating Drake. It's taking yeah. samples of Drake, creating its own version of Drake, and then singing like Drake. So I'm curious about where the legality is going to lie on this because it's not Drake, right? Like it doesn't say it's Drake. It's not Drake. Yeah. It just happens to sound exactly like Drake. And there's no claim that it's actually Drake. We've called it, we the people have called it fake Drake. Right. 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 And so legally, yeah, legally, point. I'm curious yeah. as to where that's going to lie. Now, if there are any samples in the song that have been stolen or not used inappropriate, used within the appropriate boundaries of what is a sample, because there are some limitations of what can be called a sample and what can be used, then absolutely go for it. But this is the part that I get a little bit tangled up on. Uh, so I found Ghost Rider 977 and then there's um, Ghost Producer. I think there's a new version of it. I think they've changed the name um, that is floating around because if it's if it's um, not actually Drake and it's a computer, I mean, I'm all for protecting the artists, my personal opinion, but yeah. I got to tell you, in a court, I don't know how you win that one. I don't. Um, I think you can. Okay, well, let, let's dream mm -hmm. a little bit. Um, if you are in court and you are Universal's lawyers and you have all the money in the world and all the time to go after them, do you confiscate the phone? Do you start looking at text messages? Do you start looking for the perception or the um, the guilty yeah. mind. You would have to find Did this person where Shane and Eric said, hey, let's right. make our own let's version of Drake. Drake. That's right. where it becomes guilty and premeditated. If, if there is a amazing Led Zeppelin cover band out there and they do an original song and they sound like Led Zeppelin, Led Zeppelin can't go after them. It would just be like, yeah, they're just a cheap second rate imitation of Led Zeppelin. But I think whether it's the media that pushed the narrative that it was Drake and The Weeknd, um, but you're absolutely right. There's nothing on there that says that. It would be like doing a... Be oh, I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. That, that happened just immediately after this. Um, there was somebody in the UK that was so sick of waiting for the English band Oasis hmm. to get back together again that they created what they called AISIS, The Lost Tapes Volume yep. 1. And they, too, just fed all sorts of Oasis songs in it, sound exactly like Liam Gallagher, the lead singer, and Noel, his brother, as the guitarist. And somebody went to Liam and said, hey, what do you think about this? And he loved it. He thought that it was amazing. In fact, he said that he sounded mega. Does now the AI sis of Oasis that is generally, yeah, of course, we're all talking about Oasis once you hear it. Um, but I think it's just kind of perceived that they're using Drake in the weekend, yeah. Obviously. Well, and there is that, right? But if you take Greta Van Fleet, yeah, that sounds exactly like everything Led Zeppelin when yeah. you if you didn't know that that was a young man with long hair not an old man with long hair, you would probably right. say, did Led Zeppelin just come up with a new song? 
Right, right. Is this a B-side from 1971 that they just yeah. found? And so, yeah. I mean, but you can't get mad at that guy. He's probably grown up inspired by Led Zeppelin. Um, and Greta Van Fleet always say, we don't sound like Led Zeppelin. They have to. Right. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, because you want to kind of make it seem like you did this on your own with no outside influences yeah. whatsoever. Yeah, it's it's fascinating stuff. You have two people that can come up with the same thing. Um, if we change the topic, change the clarity. That's what I always say in language study, right? So if you draw a picture and it's the yellow smiley face that um, that um, <laughs> Forrest Gump, when he wipes his, you know, yeah, right. That's why face in yeah. the shirt. And then the have the have a nice yeah, day. Yeah, the have a nice day Happy or things. the the shit happens one or whatever that one is, right? So you have that one, and then you have this other one that is You can swear a on little the show? bit. Just well, that's what it says. I'm quite <laughs> technically I'm quoting. <laughs> right, I'm quoting. Right, okay. Um All right. and um the the thing is is that Walmart uses the smiley face, their own version of the smiley face, right? Like it's pretty hard to discern mm-hmm. who used the smiley face first who wrote the smiley face who came up with it. But if you could prove that we were using it first, then you could say, no problem, misunderstanding. They had it first, clearly. They've proven it. You're going to have to change this. That, to me, would seem like a precedent in this particular case because it's not somebody's voice. That would be the thing, right? Like, they, they would have to prove that it was somebody's voice. If Eric Alper started singing and he sounded just like Drake, oh, far you look just like him. Um, the, <laughs> um then you could say, well, look, it's his voice. You can't, it's God's gift. You can't change his voice. But if it's a computer, bah, yeah, they got there first. See, that to me is where you could win it. Um, yes, I, I think you're right. Um, I, I wonder if somewhere in the marketing meetings, as big as this song is, does putting more emphasis on the potential to upset a huge fan base, i.e. the people who enjoy speeding up songs on TikTok, <laughs> the people who don't mind making their own remixes. Um, uh, do you end up in a situation where, like the record label did back in the 1990s, and sue their own customers for downloading illegally music off of Napster? Mm-hmm. Um, how much of an emphasis do you put on trying to stop something that you think is wrong, but end up looking like you're falling behind in the times because AI is here. And what's funny about it is that I have absolutely no doubt, I have no proof of this, but I have no doubt though, that the same room that is having a bunch of lawyers sit around and discuss this and the legal ramifications and what they could potentially do. The next door beside them are the marketing people saying, how can we use this for the Roy Orbison estate? How can we use this to get Buddy Holly back out there? Do we kind of do this and maybe put out a Beatles song only to call it back to put more PR that's free of the oh. Beatles, you know, what's to stop them from doing? Cause you know, they are, you know, somewhere along the line, somebody's going to use this and say, I wonder how much we can play dumb about all of this just to attract attention for my Okay, artist. I'm going to reveal behind the curtain here. You ready for this? Now you work in the music industry. You do not have to agree, endorse or anything that I'm about to say. I used to own a company <laughs> that did licensed music for business. Our mm. relationships and dealing with the record labels, especially in America, was absolutely dreadful. Oh, it was disastrous. It's terrible. It's, 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 
it's, it's awful. awful to deal yes. with them. Yeah. Baby Blue Sound Crew <laughs> is a great example. They used to make mixtapes yeah. like crazy. All of a yep. sudden, magically, they have a record deal. Right. Yeah. And then um, there was a radio station in Calgary that they started doing hook based radio. They edited songs and sped them up. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or in fact, even played just 30 yep. seconds they, of the course. They added the, basically it. the hooks and that was it. They made them two minutes or less, yeah. sped them up and did everything. Fast forward 10 years. And now what do you have? You have TikTok, which is shortening songs, writing hooks, speeding them up, and playing them mm. faster, hooks only. And not only that, but the trend in music is two minutes or less for pop songs. So if you rewind yeah. back in time, the record labels had no problem slamming the door on this back then. Oh, but we can make money now. Oh, well, wait a second, right? Yeah. And I'm a capitalist. Record label would, like, oh, yeah, for sure. For sure, the, the 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 it's so easy to look at the record labels and say you were behind in everything. You were behind in um, in rock and roll. Downloads. You were behind in turning down the Beatles and never wanted to do anything with them. And you were behind in vinyl oh, in the seventies, cassettes, and everything. Streaming. It's so easy to look back on it. But you know, the major labels are uh, of Universal Music, Sony, and Warner Music the three biggest record labels on the planet and universal dwarfs them all um, have to be credited for, you know, signing pretty much every single artist that we've ever loved and their innovations. It's, it's so easy to say that they don't get what this is. I mean, it's so easy to say right now that universal should have an AI department that is literally just creating songs because it's here. Now there was a study that came out a couple of weeks ago um, in the U S and this company asks 150 to 250 songwriters if they're using AI right now in their song. And 65% of them said yes. It wasn't the absolute full creation of the song, but sometimes it was just finishing off this lyric or they were using chat GPT to, you know, to get, you know, a couple of words here and there to literally creating music in the style of Marvin Gaye, but switching it and turning it and pulling it so that they wouldn't get caught in a lawsuit. Those artists and those producers and those songwriters are full on using AI right now. Um, but sometimes the record labels have to be the beacon of authenticity. Like they have to say, we are here for the artist, for the spirit of the artist. Um, when really they're just a tech company that's distributing music is in so much as distributing widgets. If yep. you're a distributor. Um, so it's, it's interesting that, um, that it's, it's easy, you know, Back when the whole Napster thing happened and all the books were written a decade after about all the maniacal deals that they were trying to make with Napster and just failing at every turn, falling behind in the curve when it came to technology and the internet and file sharing. Um, you could say that they were there just to protect the artists at, and they didn't want to devalue what the music is. But then, you know, again, without kind of stretching it, the artists that complain about the lack of revenue that they see on their monthly checks from royalties of Spotify and YouTube, don't complain back to Spotify, complain to the record labels who signed the deal in the first place. And so with AI, they control the right to exploit the master recordings of it. So Drake, 
could be really happy. He's only publicly said one thing about it when it turned out that last a couple of weeks ago, there was a song that had him duet with another rapper named Ice Spice. And he posted that on his Instagram and said, this is the last straw AI. What does that mean? Does that mean that the last straw I'm going to be working with you now, or this is the last straw I'm going to sue you for everything. It's all just a quagmire of you and I just thinking about what it's like sports. Like we're just trying to get into the heads of the people who control the industry. Well, the guy who's got all of the originals and masters for a guy like Drake, all of the songs we haven't heard the, um, why would he go back to work again? Because they have all the songs, all the masters. You could just go plug in the AI and just have a producer say, hey, this is what the computer came up with today. And now you're publishing your own AI content. It's not really you. You've already built the brand. Don't go back to work. That's not a. That's not the worst idea that I've heard <laughs> for, about, about it at all. Um, we know for 100 years now that we as the, <laughs> we as the audience love to put praise and shower actors and actresses with a multitude of awards. They didn't write those words. They just stood on an X and said them really authentically. That's it. Um, So what's to stop that kind of help from when you're an artist to be, well, I'm just getting to sing. Elvis Presley did it. He never wrote any of his songs. Frank Sinatra did it. He never wrote any of his songs. Is AI any different from a songwriter right now? I mean, I'm sure songwriters will kind of shake their fists right now and say, of course there is. But really, though, to the general public, I'm not so sure that they care. Yeah. I really don't. Yeah, I know. And that's that stinks, but it's very realistic, right? I mean, you give me the song. That's all they want. Just give me the song. Let me let me give you a, let me give you a different example. I, 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 I quickly brought up, you know, record labels thinking about using or calling up the Roy Orbison estate. Would you not pay money if there was a really great technology out there? Because there sort of is right now where you can go see the Beatles live in concert at your local venue from 1968 or 1965. All the holograms, right? It was huge news. And think about that technology now. I would go pay as much to go see a live real concert right now than to see Buddy Holly Michael right Jackson. now. I think it would be Michael Jackson in 1985. It would be astonishing. You know? ABBA. <laughs> and they're not ABBA. even dead. I would pay, everybody would go see <laughs> ABBA. And, you know, there are, one day, there will be a song that hits the Billboard Hot 100 at number one. And months or years later, some people say there was not a single human being involved with the creation of this record. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you? Are you? Are you? Okay. 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 Are you okay with? 877-399-9898. Um, you can share your thoughts with this. And um, <laughs> I feel dizzy just looking at this, Ryan. It's not even a picture. It's text. This makes me, I passed out when they did the MRI, the needles, because they shoot them right into where the damage is. And, um, and, uh, so here, are you okay with, if I hit the floor, please finish the show. Okay. I got you. We're almost there. Too much information. (laughs) 
TMI. It is. Oftentimes when someone says TMI and you say, no, it's fine, it really ends up being TMI. It really does. So yeah. it's a good it's a good call that you should just avoid it. But I am eternally curious as to what I, uh I need to, I'm going to try to read this, but I feel dizzy. I literally might pass out. Okay. This is, okay. this is some um, post-surgical changes noted along the anterior osseous glenoid rim with three suture anchors in situ, blah, blah, blah. Uh, glenoid osseous deficiency. Uh, that's the brown part of my bone. Google. Thank you. Focal capsulugalimentous separation at the five o'clock radian with the attachment of the proximal IGHL anterior band with the interarticular contrast extending into the defect. See, this is way above my brain. The residual anterior, anterior inferior labrum from six to three radian is severely frayed and macerated. Anterior superior labrum is severely diminutive and essentially absent. Further degenerative fraying of the posterior labrum along its anterior free edge, slap component tear involving the posto, uh, post, posterior superior labrum, which is diminutive with a short segment of non-displaced undersurface tear at 11 o'clock. I'm screwed. This is what that means. Why don't they just put, hey, Shane, by the way, <laughs> big words, big words, big words, you're screwed. Yeah, what's funny I'm gonna is we literally you know, puke. If you didn't, if you didn't, uh, you if we didn't know where that was, like uh, on your body, and we knew literally as little information as possible, we could still determine from the big words that something is wrong, <laughs> or mm. something is missing, and something needs a little bit of, uh, uh, you know, spit and polish. Yeah, yeah, it needs more, it needs more than that. I mean, they already put three screws and some string in there. That is not working. So, okay. Um, but are you okay with knowing that though? Are you okay with knowing mm. that much information and having access yeah. to it? Uh, that's tough because, uh, if, if, it, if I was in your shoes, I would want to know the at least bare minimum basics. Like this is the, let's say damage and this is the kind of recovery and maybe a little bit as to why, but do I need to know the nitty gritty details as to everything that's wrong? Knowing me, no, because I used to be a hypochondriac. I used to be, as I was petrified of being used to be sick and I kid. will never, here's a great example. I remember like vividly, I was at home. And there was a, I was watching like American TV and there was like an ad for like a, a cancer medication and I felt a cramp in my arm and I looked at my mom and said, mom, I think I might have bone cancer. That was how bad my hypochondria is. It's fine now. Through I'm pretty it. sure you just but if I got those did that details, to me. Yeah. Like it's just, it's just, I feel like it would trigger those old like panicky thoughts so probably not in your shoes yeah. no yeah like it's a lot of info right and I, you don't know mm -hmm. the words uh, but here's the thing though you've never been through this kind of like anyone who's had knee replacements and these big things done it takes a long time to get there it took nine months to yeah. get the mri done it's going to take me another yep. bunch of months to get in front of the doctor right mm -hmm. and i'm going to walk in they're going to be like hey by the way you screwed up your shoulder again um here's what we can do here are your options 
right? That's it. That's all they're going to do. Yeah. And it's going to take months to get there. So, I mean, I would wonder for a long time based on the chronic pain, I don't really need an update. Like, like when I said to the, the uh, radiologist doctor who was doing the injections in the shoulder, he's like, I'm just going to take a couple pictures and see if we're in the right spot. And I was like, I can tell you, you're in a really, you're definitely in the right spot. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, uh, we can go a little bit this way. I was like, yep, that's it. Oh God. That's it. Nailed it. <laughs> Yeah, might have dropped an F bomb or two. Um, Valid. Now, I did pass out when he was doing this. I feel like I have to defend that part. It wasn't until afterwards where I sat in the wheelchair where I passed out. But it's too much information. Yeah, it kind of hits you. Like, you don't need to know these things. We don't understand it. But I guess I know that whatever, when they call, it's probably going to be important. (sighs) Yeah. Well, sorry about your shoulder. Thanks, buddy. What's your fault? I caught your bone cancer. <laughs> Sorry, this is contagious. Yes, uh, we're not making jokes about having cancer. It's, it's a joke about hypochondria. Obviously not. <laughs> Clearly, um, uh, bone cancer was in my family before, so no jokes about that. Okay, really? Um, yeah, it was uh, one of those. Um, uh, I don't know what you call it, like tertiary scenarios. Uh, prostate cancer turns into mm. you know turns into turns into turns into. Scenarios. Oh yeah 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 sucks are you okay with lost and found as in the there bin. we go as in the bin uh i mean smelly. exactly it has a smell it has a very very uh recognizable smell and often it doesn't really have what you're looking for you know nope. you might get lucky and find a scarf or you know mid or something but i feel like if you lose something, it's probably, I remember like I wore my favorite Toronto Raptors hat to a concert at the Saddle Dome once. I checked, I like called Lost and Found, it, gone, just gone. So, mm-hmm. you know, if, I, I'd like to know the ratio as to how many things are actually return? found from the Lost and my, Found. Uh, yeah. My daughter lost her phone at the Stampede, left it in the bathroom, and Ooh. someone turned it into Lost and Found. Lucky. That's Very great. Cool. Good, good people. Really cool. Even at the Calgary Stampede. Yeah. That's and I would, good. I would imagine that if you go to the school lost and found with your kids, you won't find the item you're looking for, but you will find nope. something that's yours from four months ago. And you're like, there's your jacket. You said Billy, <laughs> right? Like he's one of those parents. <laughs> yeah, know. exactly. You yeah, know yeah, what yeah. I mean, parents. All right. Um, if you live in Kitsilano, what a nice place. Check your local lost and found bin for something big, by the way. A snake is on the loose. After escaping from its owner's home, a six-foot-long, fully-grown boa constrictor went missing from a third-floor apartment near West 4th Avenue and McDonald Street sometime Sunday-ish. Its owner noticed it was gone at around 3 o'clock Sunday afternoon and called the SPCA and the city to report it. The owner says the brown and tan-colored snake was in her enclosure at around 6 o'clock that morning and believes it may have gone down the fire escape looking for food. She's very friendly. I handle her on a regular basis. She's very sociable. She'll give me little kisses on my face. Yeah, it's kind of touch and go with people if um, how they feel. Um, So I'm just hoping that she's found quickly and that nobody has any concerns. Crowther adds the missing snake is not venomous and she doesn't bite unless she feels threatened. Hmm. No, that's why they call it a constrictor. It'll squeeze you to death. (laughs) Yeah, they don't do the biting. They don't worry about that. They oh, don't she's need very to. Very friendly. Just... She gives me kisses on the face. 
and then you're going to probably run them over with your car because it's a boa constrictor. It's okay. Big, now, cute now, snake. I saw a picture of it. It's pretty cute. Phoenix Crowler says uh, snakes eat one large rat every four weeks. How long has it been since you fed your snake, man? Like your snake ran away. <laughs> um, call 311 if you find a massive snake in your local rat infested alley. Dining out. I see snakes as a Tree pet. No, can't do it. Not a thing. Don't think yeah, so. Yeah, I, I know lots of people that do have snakes as pets and, and really love that lifestyle of keeping and, and owning reptiles and other, you know, kind of creepy crawlies. And the snakes don't actually bug see, me all that much. They're, I think they're no, fine. If you're putting you it would... in a jar, you're putting it in a cage and it can't get out. That's dumb. But, Not a pet. Very good. Very good point. I would not, like, if I had a snake, he would, you know, I'd give him a great, great little terrarium. You know, he'd have a great place to live. But I would never, like, come sit on my lap while I watch Netflix. You know, it's just not that kind of thing. I don't think so. I think that it's, if you keep it in a cage, like, if it's a budgie, like a dumb budgie in a cage, eh, what kind of life is that, right? But if it's a Mm -hmm. parrot that's in and out of its cage, because that's its home, but it's out around the house, walking around, hanging out with you, hello. Right? Like, I, that's fine. People have bunnies that are in their house, like they're like a pet, mm-hmm. then have a pet. Otherwise, you're a, you're a zoo or a, a farmer, rancher, you know, like let, I let them out. I mean, fish, obviously an exception because that whole water thing, but you know, let them out. I had a roommate once, he had turtles. Yeah. They used to hang out. They used to walk around the house. They had their warm really? rocks that they went to and they always hung out. You come in and they'd be swimming in the bathtub. Oh yeah, they just let them free. They also had bunnies too. They used to poop lots, but yeah, don't do that. Hmm. Um, okay, we have time for one more for sure. Ryan, did you have a preference? Uh, you could do probably no, do not the tweets really. one because we talked about tweets, eh? I would do the tweets one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We are banging. All well, Ryan was banging on Twitter earlier. So, are you okay with tweets when they're short and funny? Or helpful information, but that's getting harder to verify and actually get these days because you can't really tell where you're getting your information from on Twitter anymore. Agreed. It used to be that you could easily tell if a tweet was coming from a verified source, a la Checkbox. Since Elon took over, everything has changed. Up, down, chaos. Just absolute chaos, really. And it's caused some chaos in Chicago. An account posing as the Chicago Department of Transportation falsely claimed that a major road was going to close. Lakeshore Drive is not being shut down, despite what you may have read on Twitter. Several accounts posing as Mayor Lori Lightfoot and the Chicago Department of Transportation posted that the north end of the drive would be closed to almost all cars starting in May to cut down on carbon emissions. The tweets have been seen more than 200,000 times. Twitter has since taken down the account posing as Chicago's mayor, but the CDOT account remains active. And that's where the Wild West of what is Twitter is. It seems so arbitrary today. That's from WGN News. The fake account was up until Friday night. Surprisingly, the person behind the fake account responded to an inquiry from WGN by tweeting, We are not an organization. We represent the collective demands of Chicagoans, Chicagoans, who don't think there should be a highway on our lakefront, polluting it, drastically increasing noise, and increasing traffic violence. At least they're up front. Um, yeah, yeah. it's absolute chaos. What's going on on Twitter right now? Uh, the the latest thing that they've done is they've, 
given back blue check marks, but only if you're popular. So it's a paid for service. So there, there's some allegations out there that they could be in big trouble for this one because it's false advertising because it's a paid for service, but people are getting it for free. And so it looks like they're endorsing Twitter and they don't have a choice in the matter. So say Ryan has a million followers for his sneakers and all of a sudden Ryan gets a blue check mark. He's like, ah, I'm not looking like I'm paying for this so other people will pay and endorsing it. No way. Take away my blue check mark. Well, they're not, but because he has a million followers, which he doesn't, by the way, slacker, um, that not. he should, um, that he gets it anyway, has no choice in the matter. So, and this has all changed in the last couple of days. It also changed a couple of times last week, partly because of the CBC government funded thing. And then that's been taken away. Then that's been put back. And then they were 70% funded and then they got lippy on Twitter. So they made them 69% funded. Like it's just dumb. It's like this play toy that, that he has and to have this reach in the whole world of people's business. I mean, we're the suckers who signed up for it. It's, it's free service and you get what you pay for. Unless you don't pay for it and you're popular, then you just get it for free. But it's all right. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.